Welcome to this discussion on charting pathways to enable net zero. What role for hydrogen? This event has been organized by Hydrogen for EU in partnership with Euractive. You can follow the discussion at hashtag EA Debates and please tweet your comments there using the hashtag and our social media team will respond to you directly. And to ask questions, go to the chat section and use the ask button. One year after its release, the EU hydrogen strategy continues to be the center of debate on where, when, and how hydrogen can best support the EU's energy transition goals. The upcoming Fit for 55 package and hydrogen and gas market package will write the rules to put these ambitions into law. In this context, the recently launched Hydrogen for EU report charts potential pathways for low carbon and renewable hydrogen to contribute to the EU's goal of net zero GHG emissions by 2050, looking at the most effective mix of hydrogen technologies to be deployed across different geographies and sectors in Europe, such as power, transport, and industry, and considering factors such as cost, speed, and feasibility. It's also worth noting that this event is being held one week before the release of the Fit for 55 uh, package. Now to begin this morning, and uh, to begin today, we have the keynote address from Adina Valen, the EU Commissioner uh, for Transport. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for inviting me to share my thoughts with you today on a topic that I'm following closely, hydrogen in transport. As you know, the transport sector is under pressure to cut its emissions by 90% by 2050. As our sustainable and smart mobility strategy makes clear, hitting this target means greater operational efficiency. It means having viable alternatives available, and it means the massive deployment of sustainable alternative fuels. Hydrogen is extremely valuable when direct electrification is not possible or is complicated. In road passenger transport, there is now strong market momentum for battery electric vehicles. But hydrogen fuel cells vehicles have a role to play, particularly for long-distance heavy-duty road haul. The EU is supporting this with a commitment to build 1,000 roadside hydrogen stations by 2030 and half of them by 2025. In aviation, I'm sure you're familiar with Airbus uh, Zero-E plans, which have us all picturing hydrogen-powered short-range aircraft in service by 2035. Until that day, sustainable aviation fuels will help with immediate decarbonization, including low-carbon synthetic fuels derived from hydrogen. For waterborne transport, hydrogen is one option where we are making good progress. Another is liquid and gaseous uh, synthetic fuels that can be derived from hydrogen. In our uh, mobility strategy, we have the milestone of having zero-emission vessels market-ready by 2030. For rail, electrification remains the primary objective, but hydrogen hybrid and battery-powered trains are a good alternative to diesel where electrification makes no economic sense or is physically impossible. Europe's rail partnership will continue looking at the options, including for retrofitting regional trains. It's good to take stock of the progress, but what are we aiming for? The analysis underpinning our strategy found that for us to reach climate neutrality by 2050, hydrogen should provide around 20% of the transport fuel mix. Low-carbon synthetic fuels derived from hydrogen would need to contribute an additional 20% of the fuel mix. Today, however, hydrogen accounts for less than 2% of Europe's energy consumption and is primarily used to produce chemical products. Also, 96% of this hydrogen production is produced through natural gas, emitting CO2 in the process, 
this will need to change and uh, hydrogen needs to be increasingly produced in a cleaner way. Natural gas coupled with advanced carbon capture and storage or usage uh, technologies will need to enter the market to clean up current hydrogen production and to ensure that the unprecedented volumes needed will be available for sectors where electrification is not an option. Low carbon hydrogen is necessary to achieve our objectives on time and at lower cost for EU citizens while strongly developing renewable hydrogen production in parallel. The potential is clear, but to fully exploit hydrogen, we need everyone pulling in the same direction. Our hydrogen strategy pledges support for the installation of at least six gigawatts of renewable hydrogen electrolyzers in the EU between 2020 and 2024, and the production of up to one million tons of renewable hydrogen. Then between 2025 and 2030, hydrogen must become an intrinsic part of our new energy system. We need at least 40 gigawatts of renewable hydrogen electrolyzers and we need to be producing around 10 million tons of renewable hydrogen. The European Clean Hydrogen Alliance is uh, taking us closer to these figures. It now counts for more than 1,400 members committed to building an entire hydrogen economy in the EU. For transport, we are about to put forward an ambitious proposal on alternative fuel infrastructure. In autumn, we also foresee modernizing our guidance for the Trans-European Transport Network, or TNT. So, ladies and gentlemen, the stage is set. We have a strategy, we have an alliance, and we have the political will. Europe is also home to countless talented researchers and innovators. You, the stakeholders, can also count on the European Commission's support. Hydrogen has a clear role to play in Europe's future energy mix, including for transport, and I look forward to that potential becoming reality on our roads, in our skies, and on water. Our thanks to Commissioner Valen for what she said as the, the stage uh, set so clearly. And uh, to follow on with a bit more detail as well, we have with us this morning Johannes Truby. He's the Director of Economic Advisory at uh, Deloitte. Good morning, Johannes. How are you? Very well, Good thank morning you. from Washington. How are you? So the, I'll give the floor to you and uh, we'll begin your presentation and then we'll introduce the panel afterwards for some discussion. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure for me to present to you today our Hydrogen for Europe study. During the next 15 minutes, I will give you some context first for the study, uh, then present the main results, and uh, then finally draw some important conclusions for policymakers and company leaders alike. Our study is carried out against the backdrop of what might well be uh, the biggest energy policy challenge ever achieving net zero emissions by 2050 as manifested in the European Green Deal. What you can see on the left-hand side um, are greenhouse gas emissions by sector in the European Union. That achieving net zero emissions over the next 30 years is a formidable challenge becomes clear when we look at the emission reductions over the past 30 years. Since 1990, greenhouse gas emissions have fallen by less than a quarter. And since the last tons are typically the hardest to abate, it is clear that the EU energy sector needs to step up its efforts considerably. Renewables, electrification, and energy efficiency are obvious and well-known contributors to successful decarbonization. However, 
it is unclear whether they're sufficient. High temperature heat in industry, aviation, freight transport, and the variability of renewables are important challenges. And this is where hydrogen's value proposition comes into play. Not only could hydrogen help decarbonize these energy uses, but it can also, together with electrification and renewables, foster energy system integration. And this is really where our study comes into play. The objective of this research project is to assess comprehensively and in great detail the role of hydrogen in the EU energy sector transition towards net zero. One of the innovative aspects of this modeling exercise is the use of three complementary models. We're combining a classic energy system model, uh, Times Mirrored EU, with a dedicated technology learning model called Integrate Europe and the model of the international hydrogen trade called HYPE. The Hydrogen for Europe research project explores two pathways that lead both to carbon neutrality. The technology diversification pathway provides insights into how an inclusive approach that harnesses a wide range of decarbonization technologies can help minimizing the cost of the energy transition. The renewable push pathway examines the possible impact of a deliberate focus on renewable technologies, as we know, um, a prominent feature of the current policy debate. Both scenarios are aligned with the EU policy uh, agenda and comply with the overarching energy policy goals, including the minus 55 target uh, in 2030 and the European Green Deal. What is important to understand is that the results I'm going to present now um, should please not be interpreted as a forecast, nor as the only viable trajectories. Each pathway depicts a trajectory along which the European energy system could travel if its underlying economic, technological, and regulatory assumptions unfold in a certain way. So the objective of our pathways is to stimulate debate and illuminate strategic decision-making, but not to predict the future correctly. I would like to start the discussion of the results really high level uh, by looking at primary energy first. Unsurprisingly, in our technology diversification pathway, the share of renewable energy more than triples in the period to 2050, with solar and wind contributing the bulk to this growth. In the renewables push pathway, not shown here, the share of renewables more than quadruples. The mirror image to this is the dwindling role of oil and coal. The combined share of the two drops to around 3% by 2050, independent of the pathway we're looking at. The only element of continuity here is natural gas. As you can see, uh, the share of natural gas increases slightly during the transition and uh, falls back to around uh, one third only by the end uh, of, the, of the outlook period. Let us now take a look at the transformation of final energy consumption. Final energy consumption encompasses all the energy that is consumed in end-use appliances. For example, the electricity we're using at this very moment to, to power our computers is final energy. Similar for the natural gas um, that we're burning in the winter to heat our apartments or the petrol that goes into the fuel tanks of our cars. The first message is that final energy consumption is falling over the next 30 years. That's the energy efficiency improvement. And the second message is that electrification is almost doubling. Again, these results are pretty independent of the pathway. Now, let's move to hydrogen. 
we can see that hydrogen rapidly rises to take a share of over 20% in final consumption by 2050. And if we add to this the hydrogen that is embedded in synthetic fuels and synthetic gases, we get to a combined share of hydrogen and hydrogen-related energy consumption of around a quarter by 2050. So at the end of the outlook period, hydrogen is, after electricity, the second largest contributor to final consumption. And finally, as hydrogen source, natural gas plummets to under 5% of end-use energy. Now, how does this relate to the resilient role of natural gas um, I just mentioned earlier? The answer is that natural gas shifts from being used directly to being a raw material for producing hydrogen or electricity. So in this scenario, what is lost in direct natural gas sales is partially regained in indirect natural gas use in the hydrogen and electricity sectors. Let us now look closer at the end use of hydrogen. I'm now switching um, to the for hydrogen more common unit of million tons. So you can see that hydrogen consumption tops 100 million tons by 2050 in both pathways. The biggest user of hydrogen is the transport sector, where hydrogen and hydrogen embedded in e-fuels, ammonia, methanol, etc., cetera, uh, plays a key role in decarbonizing shipping, aviation, and heavy-duty transport. Here, really have the advantage um, of a high energy density that is needed to propel big and heavy vehicles over long distances. The transport sector is followed by industry, where some 45 million tons of hydrogen are used by 2050. Hydrogen is well suited for steelmaking, where it can act as an energy source and reductant in direct reduced iron processes. Hydrogen also plays an important role in the chemical sector and various other industries where it is used for process heat and steam. Finally, hydrogen also helps decarbonizing the buildings and power sector, albeit with markedly lower quantities used. Let us now look where the hydrogen comes from. Unsurprisingly, renewable hydrogen, either from electrolysis or biomass, takes a lead role in the renewable push pathway, where we assume binding targets for renewable energy shares of 60% in 2040 and 80% in 2050. The infrastructure needed for uh, renewable hydrogen in Europe is gigantic. Just to give you a feeling, what you see on this slide would require between 1,000 and 1,700 gigawatts of dedicated solar PV capacity, a similar amount of wind capacity, and between 680 and 1,500 gigawatts of electrolyzers. And the challenge becomes clear when we mirror, when we mirror this against today's installation of about 120 gigawatts of PV and 170 gigawatts of wind capacity um, across the EU. The technology diversification pathway, um, we see that supply of low carbon hydrogen from reformers with CCS or pyrolysis is on a par with renewable hydrogen in 2050 and acts in both pathways as an important enabler of the hydrogen economy ready to supply bulk energy uh, from the next decade. Running at higher load factors, the capacity needs for low carbon hydrogen are more modest, but still significant. Domestic production is complemented by hydrogen imports from Russia, North Africa, the Middle East, and so on. Such imports gradually ramp up um, over the 2030s. And by 2050, between 10 and 15% of Europe's um, hydrogen supply come from the international trade market. 
Traditional exporters of natural gas are also well-placed to become major hydrogen exporters to Europe. This is notably the case uh, for Russia and Algeria. And our modeling shows that access to existing cross-border pipeline infrastructure is a big advantage, as maritime transport is a relatively costly alternative. Yet, the rise of hydrogen trade is not only good news uh, for the incumbents, we also see some new kits on the block, notably Morocco and Tunisia. Let us now move on to answer the question how uh, our pathways achieve the emissions trajectory towards net zero. You can see on the left-hand side that from 2030, CO2 removal solutions are burgeoning. And by the end of the outlook period, some 400 million tons of CO2 are removed. This implies that in some applications, it is so difficult to decarbonize entirely that it is cheaper to allow some emissions and then compensate these with CO2 removal elsewhere. However, this implies that the availability of carbon capture and storage technology is indispensable for achieving net zero emissions. CCS enables emission savings in a wide range of energy uses, power generation, industry, hydrogen production. And when combined with biomass, it is pretty much the... It's very much about the benefit of hydrogen is if you're plugging it into um, renewable energy. Okay, there is also space... Uh, for low-carbon hydrogen, but this should not be seen as a pathway that needs to be occupying the majority of the space between now and 2050. It's very much a transitional uh, type thing as far as we see it from the Commission perspective. Um, the next point I'd like to make is that uh, Europe really has an opportunity. It has a window of opportunity. We need to move fast because other parts of the world are moving just as fast, and uh, we want to be the first to establish the market rules and make sure that the, the whole trading in hydrogen is, is done in a way which helps us um, and helps us not to replace today's dependency on oil and gas from, from imported sources with an uh, uh, equally uh, significant import dependency for hydrogen, right? So let's make sure that we're, again, focusing much more on the renewable side of things. Last point, a lot of this is about investment. So the IPCI that we're putting together uh, with the member states, the alliance pipeline, uh, recovery funds, there's a whole bunch of things which are there, uh, including uh, a whole range of European funds like the Innovation Fund, which can be used to help de-risk uh, the early stages of these investments. Um, looking forward to the panel discussion. Thank you very much. Peter, thank you. Christian, over to you. Three, four minutes for opening remarks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, happy to be here. And uh, sorry that at some point I'll have to speak in the plenary of European Parliament not so long from now, then I'll have to, to leave. Uh, uh, first of all, I believe that uh, uh, it's clear for me, and the study also shows that the transition towards the decarbonized energy systems uh, requires a full the full range of technology options to manage cost and provide the best chance of achieving climate neutrality goals. Both renewable and low carbon hydrogen are promising technologies. Thanks to their versatility, these clean fuels can be used across the energy supply chain as final energy and as feedstock. Hydrogen is rapidly growing attention in Europe and around the world. We discuss a lot uh, in the industry research and energy committee that I'm chairing the uh, essential role of hydrogen in order to reach our uh, 
uh, goals, uh, despite the fact that today hydrogen represents a modest fraction of the global and EU energy mix. The study that we are discussing today makes clear that we need low carbon hydrogen, so we should now develop a suitable policy framework and a EU CCS strategy that scales up CCS by 2030. And uh, I uh, am calling uh, the European Commission to launch the CCS strategy and to set up of the CCS forum, as mentioned, in the energy system integration strategy. Hydrogen produced from natural gas using CCS can achieve near zero emissions, comparable to that produced from renewables, and can also deliver negative emissions by integrating bioenergy. It, need it needs, therefore, be considered compatible on the way to a climate-neutral economy. I know it's a sensitive political discussion, but uh, myself and also uh, the country that I'm representing, Romania, and a lot of my colleagues from EPP are believing this. Low-carbon hydrogen plays a critical role in kick-starting a hydrogen economy. Renewable hydrogen catches up in the second half of the outlook period and meets the bulk of the additional demand growth if low-carbon hydrogen growth is limited by CO2 injection rate and storage availability. Instead of waiting for renewable hydrogen capacity to surface on its own, Europe can accelerate the deployment of both technologies in parallel, building on existing production methods and infrastructure, keeping options open and enabling fair competition between all potential clean hydrogen production pathways will be essential to ensure sufficient volumes, avoid fragment, market fragmentation, and delivering cost-efficient emissions reduction across the EU. I believe that Europe can become a leader both in electrolyzer and CCUS technologies. One doesn't exclude the other. Rather, as said before, a mix of technologies increases our chances to reach net zero. Finally, the EU should also take into account the various starting points of the EU member states. The situation is not the same everywhere and provide a common framework which can support all EU member states on their respective pathways to decarbonization. I believe that the results of the study underline the importance of repurposing existing natural gas infrastructure, protecting the value of the existing amortized infrastructure and unlocking a lower cost option for hydrogen transportation. For me as ITRE chair, and also I believe for many of my colleagues, and I encourage you to share this study with uh, many colleagues from European Parliament, not only from ITRE committee, but also from other relevant committees, are the study are very timely and will be useful in the negotiations between uh, European Parliament and Council for TENI regulation, for instance, but also when we'll debate, amend and uh, adopt Fit for 55 package. Thank you so much. Christian Buzoy, thank you so much. Uh, Don Summers, over to you. Hi, um, thank you, Brian. And it's really great to be here from sunny Hamburg. And, uh, and thank you again, Johannes, for, for the report and the very important findings um, of the report. I share the view that alongside electrification, gas should be seen as a or the second pillar of the energy transition. And today the focus is on natural gas, but it will increasingly also be about low carbon gases um, such as hydrogen and 
a credible path, and I'll reinforce that, a credible path to decarbonisation will require more than just electrification. So harnessing the strengths of both electricity and gas uh, will be the most efficient and fastest, uh, I don't know if that's the fastest way to create a sustainable low carbon economy. So I'm just reinforcing Peter's point earlier about the speed by which we have to move. Um, Gas plays a vital role in the energy mix and by working together with consumers, policymakers and a broad range of stakeholders, we can really accelerate uh, the advance of decarbonisation. And for those out there that know me, I am a great believer that innovation uh, delivers solutions and through continuous innovation uh, and the development across the entire value chain, the gas industry, um, are very much committed to achieving the net zero uh, by 2050 and establishing the hydrogen market. Um, and of course, markets of this size do not come about on their own. They have to be proactively cultivated. And, um, and policymakers, all of us, must take a decisive approach to encourage the emergence of these markets and promote investments in hydrogen technologies, all technologies, uh, to help ensure that there is the required infrastructure and that we firmly anchor the use of hydrogen in more areas. I am absolutely convinced uh, that hydrogen will become a cornerstone of European industry and the EU strategy for hydrogen recognises that alongside renewable low carbon hydrogen, production from natural gas reforming will play a fundamental role in providing the necessary volumes talked about earlier uh, by Johannes over the next decades to develop an integrated uh, hydrogen market. So I'll stop, I'll stop there, uh, Brian, and I'm very much looking forward to, to the debate today. Don, thank you so much. And let's go to uh, Noah Van Holst. Noah. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Brian. I hope everybody can hear me. Um, Perfectly. Yes, I think that uh, this report, uh, kudos uh, and congratulations to Johannes. I think it's a very useful contribution, once again, to show that uh, clean hydrogen is, uh, is indispensable for the energy transition and to achieve net zero emissions. And I will not repeat the reasons why. I think everybody has already heard about that. But let me focus on um, something that the IEA has been stressing in their net zero emissions roadmap. This report is very much in the same direction. And IA has been saying that uh, in order to make this happen, we need, governments need to move much stronger, more boldly and faster. And this is true for hydrogen as well in uh, Europe. So we really need to have these regulatory frameworks put in place in the member states and in the EU that create clearly defined markets for clean hydrogen and we need adequate support schemes to de-risk investment. So there is a lot of, a lot of uh, appetite for, of private investors, but in order to really uh, mobilize that private capital, so I'm not worried about the numbers that Johannes is mentioning of all that investment that is needed, but I'm worried how do we put in place the clear signals that this can be mobilized. And we need to scale up a tremendous amount of clean hydrogen if we are successful. So that's why I think we need all types of low carbon hydrogen and renewable hydrogen. So not only renewable hydrogen, it will not simply be enough what we can produce there 
to meet those huge demands that industry needs to decarbonize. Now, let me focus um, for my last bit on um, a thing that has not been mentioned enough, in my view, uh, in the presentation, which is, yes, there is a tremendous potential to produce green hydrogen, wind offshore, solar, and we have gas uh, with CCS. But then the demand will be in a different place. So how do you connect the supply sources to the demand centers? That has to be transported, that hydrogen, across Europe. And that's why it's incredibly important that we repurpose the gas pipelines in Europe increasingly to transport the hydrogen across Europe. And that's why the plan of uh, gas infrastructure companies in Europe for a creation of a hydrogen backbone is incredibly important. And that includes storage sites because we will need an incredible amount also of storage for seasonal storage of, uh, of hydrogen. And that can be done in salt caverns. So a lot of the investment all will also need to go into creating that infrastructure to have the whole value chain, demand and supply connected through the infrastructure. And yes, we will also need imports. I agree with the report. I think rather optimistically saying only 10 to 15%. I would not be surprised if it is a lot more uh, because uh, up to up to now, the Europe is, is uh, basically importing half of its energy in fos uh, mainly fossil fuels. I would be really surprised Pleasantly surprised, I hope it's true, that we can uh, decrease that import dependency so much, but it's not uh, a disaster if we import it from many, many diverse sources, including the ones mentioned in the report. But I think Australia and Chile are also huge uh, potential exporters of uh, clean hydrogen. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Yes, that also struck me in the report, though, as Johannes presented, the energy security dimension of this. And if we can't uh, get from one or two suppliers, it's better to have the diversified uh, approach to this as well. I also took out some other uh, facts, a few facts I'm going to run through the discussion. Uh, first one, maybe Peter, you want to respond to this first. So uh, Johannes mentioned the demand for hydrogen could exceed 100 million tons of H2 by 2050, more than half of the total gross final energy consumption uh, being supplied by non-electrified technologies in 2050. Peter, you know, in terms of this finding and the EU's vision for hydrogen, particularly uh, with the view of the policy initiatives that, that you have, how does this fit? Well, we've, we've said what we think should be the objective for 2030 and 2050 for, for clean hydrogen in the hydrogen strategy, but many people are starting to tell us that we may not be ambitious enough, uh, and even for the 2030, we can maybe aim higher. Um, so that we'll be able to test when we start to get these investments rolling out. And um, uh, I did refer to the to the investment pipeline we collected through the Alliance. I gave a slightly misleading information. I said that 80% of the, the, the investment proposals were relating to uh, electrolyzers. I should have said 80% of those relating to the production side uh, were relating to, 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 um, to electrolyzers. Um, so I think if we can get these investments going, and, and more than two-thirds of the investments we've got uh, are due to take place in the first three to four years, so it can really contribute to our short-term 2025 target, uh, we'll see. Maybe we can uh, readjust uh, upwards our expectations for 2030 and, and also for 2050. There's scope for more ambition, you think, within this as well. Okay. Anybody else want to add comment to that? 
All right. Now, the second uh, fact that struck me as well, hydrogen, European hydrogen production uh, and use can grow dramatically with both low carbon and renewable hydrogen necessary to enable fast, low risk and more cost effective delivery of net zero with a mix of hydrogen types. And you heard different people mentioned this as well and uh, how important that particular mix would be. Uh, you know, Christian, how, how do you see this, this in terms of uh, our capacity to move forward. Should we focus on one side or another, or does it really matter from your perspective? How, how important is the mix of diff different hydrogen types here? No, I really believe uh, that uh, we need a mix uh, of uh, different types of hydrogen. Uh, I think that it would be, as I said in my introductory remarks, uh, uh, that uh, it is not worth to wait uh, years, maybe decades, to have uh, the possibility to produce hydrogen only from renewables, because now, of course, we don't have uh, the installed capacity. You have uh, uh, a lot of ambitions regarding to renewables. Uh, Red to Directive uh, will come with uh, much reinforced and much ambitious uh, targets, uh, uh, European funds from uh, RRF, from uh, cohesion funds, uh, from uh, modernization fund, from many other, uh, uh, many other uh, sources are also helping uh, member states to invest uh, in uh, renewables. But and of course the policies uh, are there, and uh, member states will be will be encouraged to use them. But it will not uh, be enough, and we need to uh, start building on hydrogen as soon as possible. That's why uh, I think uh, it's more. Uh, political and ideological discussion than a practical one. I believe that we should use great hydrogen and of course to CCS. Sure, I think we're, we're some fault on the delay here. The, that's your perspective clearly from, from, uh, from where you are on the EPP. Others as well, the Greens, what's the mood in the Parliament in general as well? Is it the same uh, direction or is there much discussion and difference in terms of ideology here? It's, of course, uh, a sensitive discussion until now uh, in many that of the maybe uh, discussions and uh, even votes that we had, uh, sometimes the majority is different, but uh, we should continue to convince our colleagues, which are looking from uh, a very pure uh, and ideological perspective. And they're extremely enthusiastic and it's good to be like this. But on practical terms, I think we need uh, both types of hydrogens. And of course, uh, with the development of CCS and CCUS, uh, I believe that uh, we could advance in this direction. Okay, thank you. Uh, Johannes, just to ask you, the Fit for 55 package and the hydrogen decarbonized uh, gas market package, how can we put these ambitions into action? You know, to your mind, what comes first? How does this happen? Yeah, I, it's probably another question more for the for, for Peter and uh, and and Christian. Um, but uh, I think what uh, what we can learn from the study is that if we take an economics perspective on uh, on 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 the decarbonization on the net zero objective, then we see that an awful lot. Uh, needs to happen in terms of creating the necessary markets, uh, the market rules to be able to trade hydrogen like electricity or natural gas is traded today, um, to have the necessary regulation in place uh, that imports uh, can, uh, can, can work and uh, 
uh, and that the gas qualities are, are being defined. But I think most importantly, and I think this is also what um what Noah has has alluded to, is the question of how the projects can be made profitable, in the sense uh, that. Today, the cost of CO2 is not sufficiently internalized. And that's why uh, clean technologies or clean energy is more costly uh, than, than dirty energy. And I think bridging this gap, this economic gap, um, that will then automatically trigger investments is probably one of the most important things uh, that, that need to happen. Okay, I know Christian Buzoy has got to uh, run off to, to plenary in just a moment as well. We can't detain you from democracy. So just to ask you, just to follow on from uh, what Johannes was saying there, how do we put this ambition into action? Uh, what's the most important dynamic that's got to take place here? Yes, I'll have to speak on the European Medicine Agency, and uh, I'm uh, looking to the screen to see when my turn is. Uh, well, uh, I really appreciate the uh, European Commission uh, hydrogen strategy. You know that uh, we made some uh, further proposals. We tried to reinforce some issues. Some legislation will follow. So the good framework uh, is uh, is here. The good legislative framework that will develop, amend, and adopt uh, very soon. Then I saw many member states, and uh, among the most uh, strong and uh, uh, big member states from European Union uh, putting a lot of emphasis on hydrogen, having national strategies and investing a lot, creating also the demand and the market for uh, for hydrogen. And uh, uh, all the others uh, will follow. It's important to uh, set the general rules, to set the targets, to give the financial incentives and, of course, uh, use some of the, of the opportunities of European funds to uh, build some of the infrastructure that we will need. The political will is uh, clear, uh, the demand will be clear, we need hydrogen essential to reach our goals, so it's important to implement what we are discussing. Christian, thank you, I'll let you go, and uh, we'll speak with you again soon. Take care. Don, just to follow on from that as well, from your side, the practical dimension of uh, putting these ambitions into action, what strikes you as, as a matter of urgency? Thanks, Brian. Um, I think, so one thing is clear for me, and I just want to reinforce that all types of hydrogen are absolutely needed. Um, you know, we shouldn't have this big debate over what colour it's about, making sure that we deliver in the most climate-friendly, cost-efficient way. Um, and, you know, we are transforming ourselves to make sure that our products are climate-neutral. Uh, climate um, but we absolutely need an enabling framework to achieve the goal. And one thing for me is absolutely clear, we need to establish the hydrogen market now. Um, and as was talked about earlier, a technology open energy policy um, can really reduce the costs of that energy transition and speed up the market development. Um, so whether it's hydrogen produced from renewable energies or natural gas, it really doesn't matter. What does matter is that again it's produced in a climate friendly and efficient uh, way so that would be uh, that that's my perspective and we should not leave any potential option untapped so we need to establish that hydrogen market now and invest in technologies in order to deliver what we have promised 
you. We'll talk a bit more about um, creating the market later on as well. Uh, another uh, fact from the study, uh, Noah, maybe you want to take this. So allowing low carbon hydrogen to contribute at its full potential along with renewable hydrogen could save Europe over 2 trillion euros uh, through to 2050. You know, in the context of uh, the IEA's uh, hydrogen you know, net zero by 2050 roadmap, how does that sit with you? Yeah, it's, it's feasible. But um, Brian, uh, I'm always very much focused on the next 10 to 15 years because 2050, I mean, and this is not saying that it's not useful to have this, you know, this view on what is the pathway to 2050. But let me turn it around. If we do not succeed in the next 10 to 15 years globally, but also in Europe, to scale up hydrogen from small as it is now, the clean hydrogen, to really significant in the next 10 to 15 years along the lines of the targets in, in Europe, then we are never going to make, we are never going to be in a position to achieve those huge numbers for 2050. So I, this is what I'm always a little bit missing, to be honest, the sense of urgency, what needs to happen in the next 10 years. So we need much stronger policies and also faster. We are still a little bit in a business as usual mode of policymaking in member, many member states and also including in Brussels. But we need it so fast. I mean, the target in 2024, that is basically means we need to enable final investment decisions on projects today, tomorrow, next week. And is the framework in place yet? No, it is not. So people are waiting. Projects are now waiting for final investment decision. And because of the uncertainty that is still there. So we need to take that away. So I'm my plea is have a really also focus on some key projects for Europe and make them happen. Have tailor-made solutions, tailor-made private-public partnerships to take away that uncertainty and to enable final investment decisions this year, next year for some key projects going forward. Thank you. Okay, I want to get some other comments from the others now, but just what do those uh, projects, those pilots uh, look like for you, Noah? What, what do you have in mind when you speak about that? No, I cannot, I cannot go. I'm, I'm not allowed to go into details, uh, but, okay. but I know that there are projects that are still waiting. For instance, I mean, the commission rightly said the state aid rules need to be adjusted because we okay. need to be able, if Johanna says we need to have support schemes in, in place to bridge the, the cost gap between you know, to make it economically feasible, the financial investment decisions, those support schemes need the approval of, of Brussels. They are working on the state aid rules, but it's not going fast enough. They need okay. to be able, these investors, to take that decision tomorrow. So that's why I'm saying we need a little bit of a more unconventional policy making that ahead of those adjustment of the rules that need to go through their process, the commission, and needs to be able, and member states need to be able to decide today and tomorrow about significant projects that are otherwise are waiting, and we run right. the risk that private investors run away. Sorry. Comment as well. Peter, you first. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree with the need to get, get cracking on this really fast. Um, the Innovation Fund, it's been heavily oversubscribed, particularly for hydrogen-related projects. So the second stage of the large projects has 
just gone through. Um, I haven't seen the results yet, but I'm expecting a whole bunch of hydrogen projects in there. I've already referred to the 1,000-plus uh, projects collected under our investment pipeline. We will come out with the de definitive investment pipeline at the second Hydrogen Forum meeting later this year. And then it's a question of guiding people to find the finance. And I don't know if you noticed, Noah, but um, uh, at the recent Hydrogen Forum, we presented uh, a financing compass, which tells the, the companies how to find the right doorways for public funds, whether these are European funds or uh, national funds. Um, and then the IPCI. So Germany is leading 22 member states and Norway uh, and DG Comp and ourselves and the JRC are helping. They've already got a pipeline of 500 projects which have gone through national uh, calls for proposals. They're being sort of filtered now. Um, and we're hoping to have uh, one or, or even two IPCI packages uh, uh, pre-notified to the Commission uh, during the summer, uh, with the first investment decisions being ready for early next year. So I think uh, we've got the message about the need for speed. Um, I'm more worried about things on the reality side, like permitting. This could be a big bummer for um, uh, getting in the way of uh, achieving our objectives. Uh, so I think that's an issue in its own right. Okay, Johannes. And then Don. I can, yeah. I can I can only support um, that sense of of urgency to move quickly because, um, you know, like even if um twenty thirty might look far away in terms of energy uh, sector investments, it's actually around the corner, uh, with the lifetimes of of the installations um, easily exceeding twenty twenty five thirty years. Um, you only got very few investment cycles in the period uh, to to twenty fifty. And and if you want to arrive in 2050, you need to start. Uh, you need to go onto that road early, and that early is essentially now. And what we've done lately, just to give you a bit of a feeling for the numbers, we've started tracking all the announced hydrogen projects in Europe um, over the last two and a half years. Uh, we've been adding these uh, up, and. Uh, and under cautious uh, under optimistic assumptions that they will come online and um, that they will produce uh, properly uh, the hydrogen, uh, we can assess what today's projects would produce by 2030 and compare this against um, the, uh, the target of 10 million tons of the EU hydrogen strategy. And in fact, even if all goes well, if all the projects that have been announced to date uh, come online and work properly, are fully online by 2030, then they would only produce about a third of, um, of that announced uh, target. And if we mirror this, then against the 30 million tons uh, that we have in the Hydrogen for Europe study for 2030, then it becomes clear that there is really no time uh, to waste to sort out the regulatory frameworks and uh, get the investors uh, ready to, to put steel in the ground. Thank you, Don. That's a great introduction, uh, Johannes. So I'm going to steal some of your some of your comments. But I I don't know of any gas company that is not involved in hydrogen uh, projects at the moment. Um, such projects involve like gas producers uh, and also gas grid operators, the heating manufacturers, the local suppliers, heavy duty uh, industries, and the energy intensive um, industries. And all of them are looking at how we can introduce uh, and integrate hydrogen into their systems and how they can adapt their existing technologies and their business strategies 
and how they can contribute to finding a solution. So whether it's in the production and transport of hydrogen, the storage of CO2 via the very important uh, carbon capture, or the adaption of different appliances to use hydrogen, I, I don't know of anybody that, you know, that most companies are, are, are doing this. And, you know, if I speak on behalf of Gas Naturally today, as opposed to the CEO of, a, of an energy company, Gas Naturally members are leading the way, I would say, in operationalizing CCS technologies on the ground. And to Johannes's point, you know, it's a, it's a proven technology, it's commercially available today. And we've got, I think, 19 large-scale CCS facilities currently operating globally, and two of which are in Europe, and another 20 nearly uh, are to be built. And, um, and we've got a, a number of examples, but to Johannes's point, there are more than 50 projects planned in Europe um, to capture about 50 million tonnes of CO2 um, from, from those projects by 2030. So we have the, the will, we have the skill set, we have the, the mindset, we just need absolutely the framework um, and the, the policies in place to, to support the, the speed in the transition. Thank you. We have lots of questions coming in now as well. I encourage the, our audience to send more. I'm going to come to those in just a couple of minutes as well. If you have a specific question for a specific person, uh, please uh, put that in and, and let us know where you're from as well, just out of interest. Um, in the chat, which maybe you can't see, uh, Noah has used the phrase uh, earth shot. We need an earth shot for clean hydrogen, and which he says is the phrase that the US uh, uses for the Department of the Environment here. I'm walking distance from the White House uh, just now as well. I remember when Obama, President Obama was in Brussels, he, the only thing I took away from his press conference was that he was there to sell uh, LNG and uh, the parliament was trying to assist in the opening of ports for the shipping of, of LNG as well. Noah, in terms of this international dimension and uh, by comparison with the US, how do you see this comparison with the US and Europe at the moment? Well, um, the good news is for Europe that, I mean, uh, Europe does have a comparative advantage. So uh, I think we are, uh, for all the reasons that have been mentioned, we are uh, um, uh, certainly, uh, there's a huge momentum in Europe and even a lot of international investors from outside of Europe are really looking at Europe. I mean, Gates Ventures, for instance, but many others as well. So there's a big appetite, um, uh, but again, we need to deliver it on the ground now. Um, so the US is now starting to step up. So they launched just an earth shot uh, department of energy of uh, saying that they want to get the cost of, uh, of, of clean hydrogen down to $1 uh, in 2030, $1 per kilo of hydrogen, sorry, in 2030. That's a huge uh, challenge that they put out there. But I think uh, I like the term earth shot in, in the sense that it gives kind of a mission that, you know, we want to achieve that, we need to achieve that, and we need to mobilize everything we can to make it happen. And we should not forget, of course, Asia. I think Peter already alluded to that. I think Japan and Korea, Australia, they are moving, and China, not to forget, are moving fast on hydrogen. And they are building international value chains as well, and uh, which is good because in the end, it will be a global market where uh, hydrogen, clean hydrogen can be traded as a global commodity. So uh, it is not, I'm not saying that as, as in terms of bad, but if, if Europe wants to keep its, uh, its current comparative advantage, we need really to, to step up to the plate and, and deliver faster on the ambitions. 
Okay, just a quick comment in this, Peter, then I want to ask uh, Don about what, really what's happening on the ground practically as well. Peter, you know, in the context, you know, I just mentioned China here as well. We're in a competitive field and uh, it impacts everything else that we do in terms of our, our economy. Uh, how much of the, the Fit for 55 package uh, builds that into its consciousness? And are, are we too focused on the environment to the detriment of the competitive uh, global situation as well? Uh, two key words for me, well, two key concepts for me are resilience and open strategic autonomy. We've seen so much disruption in supply chains in the last couple of years and uh, not, a not so reassuring uh, geopolitical um, outlook. So uh, this is why I made the remark earlier. I think we should be trying to prioritize doing uh, a, a large proportion of this hydrogen economy with the expertise and the, the leadership that we already have and the investment appetite here in Europe. Um, you cannot ignore that if you're going to replace import dependency for oil and gas with import dependency for um, for hydrogen, then you're missing a trick. You're missing an opportunity because this has the potential through the renewable pathway to give you more uh, resilience uh, and open strategic autonomy. And don't forget that if you're creating hydrogen in Chile or Australia or South Africa or wherever, you're converting it to something. It's very difficult and has a, it has a, uh, a greenhouse gas emission footprint if you're shipping it halfway across the world and then you're converting it back into something usable on the other side. So there are energy security and uh, sustainability issues, I believe, that need to be addressed. Thank you. Don, just before we take some questions, the natural gas industry is going to go through a big change with uh, the impact of hydrogen. You know, from your perspective, what's happening on the ground and, and what kind of preparations are being made for this? Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Um, I can assure you that uh, the entire value chain is working on ideas on how to deliver uh, important projects. Grid operators are working on possible ways to transport hydrogen uh, via existing pipelines through blending, uh, but also repurposing uh, of existing natural gas pipelines or building new ones. Um, gas producers have projects to produce green, blue, turquoise hydrogen. With respect to blue hydrogen, the development of CCS technology is absolutely critical. And I keep reinforcing that point um, in terms of delivering on our promises um, and also low cost uh, clean energy. So, you know, the point I made earlier about we have the capability, the skill sets, the will, the technology, um, and, you know, enable to contribute to advancing uh, decarbonisation. So, I don't know, and I said this before, I don't know of any gas company that's not involved in hydrogen projects. Um, and they're all looking at how to integrate hydrogen into their systems. Um, and I mentioned the number of projects that's happening with regards to CCS in Europe, globally, and what's in the pipeline before 2030. But gas naturally members are leading the way in operationalizing in a practical way the technology on the ground. Um, and, uh, and it is a proven technology. It's commercially available today. Um, with, like I said, 19 large-scale CCS facilities currently operating globally, uh, two of them in Europe, and with many other projects like uh, in, the, in the pipeline. So all of them, one thing is clear, they need the stable framework uh, conditions and coherent policies are absolutely needed to enable the innovation and create the economies of scale and to reduce the cost going forward. And um, by supporting investment in you know, all of these projects like so then makes, you know, the projects more attractive to private financing um, and creating the business cases um, for investments uh, for the innovative technologies like CCUS. 
So lots going on on the ground. And I'll just reinforce what everybody else is saying. Um, you know, there's a sense of urgency. Um, you know, everybody's heading in the direction, uh, you know, of uh, 2050 climate neutral. We just need the stable framework in order to be able to, to deliver on our promises. But it's it's definitely, the train has definitely left, left the station, Brian. Thank you. But is that train hydrogen powered? That's the question. Thank you, Don. And uh, Johannes, you wanted to come back with a quick comment on the imports as well. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I just wanted to give um, maybe a perspective uh, from the study on, on imports. So what we've done is we've looked in, in great detail um, at the amount of hydrogen that Europe could import from outside Europe. And we've done this uh, really from an economic perspective. So adding up the different costs of the supply chain. And what we've learned is that the landed cost of the hydrogen in Europe really depends on a wide variety of, uh, of parameters. And how these parameters um, will pan out in the future uh, determines essentially what the share um, of, of the hydrogen imports in Europe are from an economic perspective. But I think what we shouldn't forget, and, and that's what, what Peter, but also Noah have um, alluded to, that it's not just about the economics when we look at uh, the, the imports. Imports can help complement um, missing domestic uh, production in serving demand. That's the supply gap um, that, that we've also, that I've also alluded to. But um, it, it can also, the, the European energy transition might reshuffle the cards, uh, the geopolitical cards uh, wider than Europe. And as such, I think it's a legitimate foreign affairs question um, whether this is a good moment to uh, strike new alliances with old partners. And uh, last but not least, climate change is a global phenomenon. And uh, Europe gains nothing if it achieves net zero in isolation. And um, developing trade relationships with developing countries can certainly help to build up a hydrogen economy in these countries, which will then help them to decarbonize more easily. So when we look at the, the imports, we should always uh, take uh, this, this comprehensive uh, perspective on, um, on trade. Johannes, thank you. The Rubik's Cube of our environment and uh, trade future. Let's go to some questions. One from uh, Daniel Egbonaway. He asks, what is required to make the existing transport and gas cavern a storage structure each two ready? And what is required to get us there? Maybe Noah than Don. Noah. Well, um, it's, uh, it's, 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 relatively, uh, it's relatively easy. I mean, we have looked at it uh, very carefully in the, in, and very early on in the Netherlands. And I can tell you that uh, maybe you missed that announcement, but uh, actually only a week ago, I think, the Dutch government officially asked the gas infrastructure company, Gazuni, to which I'm an advisor as well. Um, they asked uh, the gas infrastructure company, Gazuni, to, to basically to build that, to construct and start repurposing the gas pipelines to transport hydrogen. And, uh, and and Gazini, the technical experts have seen that, yes, it can be done. Uh, you need some adjustments. You need to, uh, I don't want to become too technical. You need to replace some compressors, etc. But it is relatively uh, easy to do. 
and it costs uh, not more than 20% of building a new pipeline for hydrogen. So it's, it's a huge opportunity, not only for the Netherlands, but for all European countries which have a good gas infrastructure to start repurposing. And of course, it will take time. So the gas volumes will go down and the transportation of hydrogen will then take over. It will take decades. But again, as with other things, you have to start now to start building that infrastructure uh, in order to be ready in the next decades to come. Thank you. Don't anything to add on this? I think it was an excellent answer and just reinforcing the point that I made earlier around it's already happening. People are already, you know, organizations, companies are already looking at repurposing existing kit, building new kit. Um, we have the skills, we have the technical expertise, we have the will. Um, it's about the, the stable uh, framework that's required to continue that, but uh, it's, it's heading in the right direction. Lots have been done, lots to do, um, but, uh, but we're moving forward. Okay, Peter? Well, clearly there's going to be a need for some repurposing, but there may also be a need for some dedicated hydrogen uh, infrastructure as well. Uh, apart from the 10E, which has been referred to by uh, the ITRI chair, uh, we're doing a project with the Joint Research Centre at the moment, which will uh, allow us to do some investment uh, planning, some scenario building around what kind of infrastructure would be needed for hydrogen to support the needs of energy intensive industries. So it's only part of the picture, but um, uh, our colleagues from DG Energy will also be looking at it from the broader hydrogen uh, infrastructure perspective. Thank you. A question, maybe Johannes, maybe you can answer this. Professor Tony Mills asks, why is there no place for oxyhydrogen generation to replace the century-old compressed gas cylinder use uh, for metal treatment? Can you answer that, Johannes? Or anyone? I don't think so. <laughs> okay, anyone else want to have a go at that? No, fine, okay. Um, this one question may have been for Christian, who's now gone. Maybe someone else can take a, maybe Peter can answer this. Any info on uh, 10E regulation uh, legislative timeline? For example, when will ITRI uh, adopt its final report? Thanks, says from Katya. Peter? Yeah, you need to ask the guy that's left. Yes, we will follow up with them afterwards. Thank you, Katya, for your question. And uh, we'll come back to those in, in just a moment as well. Uh, you, in, in terms of, of our Europe's ambition, we talked a lot about the, the energy security side of this uh, to the investments. Uh, Peter, earlier you mentioned about um, the thousand uh, projects I think were, were funded. Um, uh, uh, you, that's, that seems like a lot for any European uh, funding structure. Are, are you excited that there's so, so much activity in this sector? Will this uh, does this give the stimulus for private investors to come on board or uh, are we still at early stages and, and there's much more work to be done? Well, if uh, the Alliance members a month to, um, uh, to come up, to come up with their projects. And um, mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's pretty surprising and uh, amazing that uh, we got so many, so many projects in, in such a short time. Um, so my commission is very excited, which means logically I'm very excited too. Uh, <laughs> even though, even though the task of analysing them uh, and helping helping the companies to kind of find each other through the matchmaking process, which we've launched, is going to be quite a lot of work between now and, and November. But um, I think it is important work. Uh, we've got the roundtables 
of the uh, alliance as well, which are looking at the potential of these of these projects. But um, um, I'm quite optimistic. I'm quite optimistic about getting projects uh, uh, funded and off the ground uh, pretty quickly. But I, I do come back to that point, which no one else has picked up on. Uh, there's quite a lot of permitting involved in the whole yeah. uh, energy transition sphere. Um, uh, quite a lot of the Green Deal is if you don't get things permitted, if, if you don't do the things for the recovery fund uh, in good time, you're going to find blockages. So I know that people at like the wind sector are very worried about this because it's all very well saying by 2030 we want so much offshore wind uh, capacity. But if you can't actually get things approved, it's not going to happen, is it? I think that's an issue that needs Johann. to be delved into. Johannes, in terms of the report, how do you see this regulatory approach and, and, and the permitting? Do you see this as a real bottleneck or, or is there is this being streamlined more effectively? Um, I, I, I fully agree with Peter that this is um, a, a big issue, the social acceptance. Um, and, and, and I think that's also where the permitting uh, comes from is, is because you, 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 you just don't want to let everybody build uh, no matter what. Um, and I think the energy transition and that's independent, actually, of the of the type of energy or the fuel. Uh, will always face some some resistance uh, from people. So social acceptance, and that's you know, I think hydropower is an, an excellent example. Is in the sense, it's the biggest source of renewable uh, energy still today, but it is also um, highly contested whenever a new hydrogen um, a new hydropower project is is being developed uh, we see the issue with wind we see the issue um to a lesser degree maybe with with pv uh, but we certainly also see it uh, with ccs with nuclear with many uh, clean technologies so what we've done how we've approached this in the study is um that we've assumed that the European citizen uh, buys into the idea um, of this enormous, formidable challenge of achieving a net zero emission by 2050 and will be ready um, to, to, to accept uh, windmills, um, CCS, and, and in, in some regions also nuclear power. Uh, but that's certainly something that, um, that needs to be discussed. And that's also something that everybody needs to work on because who, companies who want to do um, clean energy projects, they need to have um, also the social license to, to operate. And that's, that's why it is very important to take the citizen uh, with us. Thank you. We're coming close on time. So I think we'll go to your, your wrap up sound bites now as well. Noah, you want to kick off uh, your final remarks? Oh, sorry. I, I wanted still to to come to comment on on no, no, point on pub ahead. public acceptance. I think it's very. I think it's a critical point. The good the good news is I think is that uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm also at a local level, also from citizens about particularly green hydrogen, and that's very good. It also offers you know local solutions, uh, but we do need to be very uh, aware of that, particularly in the new applications in transportation you need to uh, immediately have the highest safety standards because if anything would go wrong with a refueling station or, or uh, anything major, that could give a big backlash. So we need to be very aware of that, that the new applications where you come very close to the citizens, you need to uh, ensure the highest safety standards uh, around there. Luckily, there is a lot of experience there, but we need to build on that. 
and we need to respect that uh, from the from the very beginning. Otherwise, we would undermine that. No, I would. Um, in terms of wrapping up, I, I would just want to repeat what I said before. Uh, I think huge ambitions are great. Uh, Europe has a fantastic position to uh, make that happen. But again, we need to be um, very uh, very strong and faster in 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 implementing it in the member states as well as in Brussels and including all the possible barriers we need to tackle it in kind of earth shot uh, approach that uh, i think is required in order to make it happen because the challenge is huge no thank you peter um 2021 is the year of the commission putting forward the enabling framework um, the alliance is doing excellent work identifying barriers uh, so that will come into us. We can deal with those things. We're doing everything we can to accelerate the whole investment side of this. And uh, I can only reiterate what everyone said. We have uh, a real need for speed. Thank you, Peter. Don. I'm going to quote that, Peter, a real need for speed. That's uh, something that I'll use uh, going forward. But for me, um, a lot has been done. A lot is available, we have a lot to do, but most important is to continue to innovate, develop, learn, and make our technologies cheaper. Um, I, I would also summarize that um, gas should be seen as a second pillar of the energy transition alongside electrification, and that um, a core learning from the great study that Johannes has, has provided for us is that CCS is, it's reinforcing that CCS is absolutely essential. Uh, for us to achieve our climate uh, neutrality and we need to scale up uh, fast. And my final commentary is that um, I absolutely believe and I'm convinced that hydrogen will become a cornerstone of our European industry and, uh, and I'm also convinced that it will need all types of uh, hydrogen, all types of colours. And I'm looking forward to the speed, uh, Peter, by which we can implement the framework um, and get going or continue to get going. Don, thank you very much. And soundbite over to uh, Johannes. Yeah, so I think our study has shown it very clearly that there is no business as usual trajectory to net zero. The energy system as we know it today needs to change deeply and profoundly. And we all need to, to accept that. But I think um, the good news is if you look at our pathways, you can see that it is still feasible and um, that and here coming back to the speed argument that if we start doing it now, we can avoid uh, dangerous climate change. Thank you. On that note, our thanks to Commissioner Valen for taking the time to speak with us uh, today. To Peter, Christian, Don, Johannes and Noah for an excellent discussion. Uh, really worthwhile. Enjoyed having uh, you on the program today. And to our Euractiv team, uh, who you don't see, but uh, they're always in the background to make this happen. Malta, Zoran, Matea and Tamara. And uh, for our uh, support today from uh, Hydrogen for EU, really appreciate that. If you're in Washington, I wish you a good morning. And in Brussels, in Europe, a good afternoon.